1: this company needed a particular technology choice, not whether a technology choice was good in and of itself.
0: Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. If you've ever had to wrestle with technology choices and then navigate the consequences when you choose the wrong path, you're really going to resonate with this next conversation. In this episode, we discuss the dilemmas and traps behind the different technology choices we make, specifically the aspirational mismatch, what it is, how to spot it, and how to avoid it with Lisa Dassault, CTO of Compass. We cover a bunch of different ways that aspirational mismatch manifests itself so that you can spot it in your own team and organization. And we also get into fun topics like choosing technology that's the wrong size, concepts like cargo culting and innovation tokens, how to stand up to outside pressure forcing specific technology decisions, and how to have the not right now conversation in an empowering way that still preserves your freedom to ideate and explore your future technology choices. Let me introduce you to Lisa. Lisa Dassault is the Chief Technology Officer at Compass. She's built her career solving complex technology problems. After her time at Microsoft, she led internet standards groups at the IETF and engineering teams at Linden Lab and StubHub. She's also founded tech startups Kathy Labs, Clutch, and Share the Visit. Enjoy our conversation with Lisa Deso. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. How are you doing today?
1: Thanks for inviting me. I'm doing really well.
0: Wonderful. Well, you and I were talking offline about some of the different traps that teams and engineering orgs run into. And you brought up something that I personally I'd never heard before or associated or connected with engineering teams. It made me think that this this topic is something that we just likely don't acknowledge enough in engineering leadership. And it's this concept of aspirational mismatch. And so I was wondering if you could kick us off by helping us understand What is aspirational mismatch, this idea of aspirational mismatch? And why is this detrimental to engineering teams or engineering orgs?
1: Aspirational mismatch is a phrase I've come up with because I really wanted to put a finger on when we make choices, not from a realistic assessment of who we are, but from a vision of who we'd like to be, and we don't resolve that, we don't resolve the difference in appropriateness. You know, I have some equipment and materials for cooking bagels in my kitchen, and I bought that thinking I want to be the kind of person who cooks bagels, and I never have. So that's an at-home personal example of an aspirational mismatch.
0: Uh well that last example really resonates with me as you know i'm in the I was telling you earlier i'm I'm in the final stages of wedding planning, and part of that is like putting assembling a wedding registry and I've talked to so many friends that like in that process have made an aspirational choice like oh, we're gonna become bread makers, and we're <laughs> gonna get this big bread making machine and then it ends up being something that never gets used so that example i totally I totally resonate with, and so when you think about like this within the context of engineering teams, what are some of the the like impacts or detriments like with with this aspirational mismatch, like what what are, what's kind of the, what is the damage that's caused with teams um, when this happens?
1: Right, because if it was just some bagel flour in the cupboard, we wouldn't care. But we often make <laughs> aspirational choices for an entire engineering team or an entire company that turn out to cost a lot more. And these choices often cost more, and not even not in the acquisition cost. I'm usually not even worried about the acquisition cost, but in the upkeep cost. So I know it'll become really clear when you make what I make an example, when a company decides to adopt NoSQL database architecture, because NoSQL is really cutting edge, and we would like to be a cutting edge engineering team, Uh, but if NoSQL isn't a good match for our database architecture, it's a bad choice, and it costs in extra programming effort and bug finding effort every day, every week.
0: So I'm, I'm less familiar with this term, but I think you've brought this up with me beforehand about the concept of cargo culting. Can you talk a little bit about how this is similar to cargo culting or different than than cargo culting? Like, how does cargo culting that concept sort of fit into this idea of aspirational mismatch?
1: Cargo culting is a more well known term for a decision making uh, flaw or bias. It comes out of the um, Pacific Islands in World War II, I guess, where for a while, planes would land being bringing wonderful things with them during the war. And then after a while, the planes stopped landing and the wonderful things stopped being brought and, and discarded. And so on a Couple Pacific Islands people made cargo runways. They would clear the grass and make the signals and hope that doing the the accoutrements of proper runway would make the cargo planes happen again. And um, a choice can be both aspirational mismatch and cargo culting. Like if you think that you're going to scale to a million users because you have a database that can scale to a million users, that is cargo culting. You have the cause and effect backward. <laughs> It's not having technology that will scale to a million u- users that gets you those million users that's that's what companies who have already gotten to a million users have
0: I want to I want to dig in and continue providing some concrete examples here because as you're explaining this I'm I'm assessing sort of some of my past decisions and I'm like I've definitely done this I've definitely made decisions with sort of this like backwards logic of cause and effect and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of the ways that you've seen some of this aspirational mismatch manifest within different engineering teams or engineering orgs. You've talked a little bit about like NoSQL and some other elements. Help us help us understand some of the concrete ways that this looks in different teams.
1: Yeah. well, another example in the same team that had us approach a brand new mobile social product by first of all building a NoSQL database approach. Also the the previous CTO had uh, the team using queues. And so not only was the team trying to link databases together, link tables together, because it really was a relational data problem um, and they were doing extra work for that, they were also doing extra work to put messages into queues and respond to those messages from queues and then have the client update its state. Because if you put a request into a queue, by definition, you don't get a response back with what the request did. So they had to add extra message tracking. They were basically building the relational database stuff they needed and the request response stuff they needed on top of this architecture that was supposed supposedly more high tech than relational databases and HTTP interactions. So it was just an enormous amount of extra work. And when those choices were made, the company didn't have a single user. And it took six months for me after arrival to undo both of those choices and have lots of discussions about backing them out, do the tech work to back them out. So that by the time we had a 1000 users in our beta, we we could go back to doing things in a simple way and work on whether we had product market fit at all.
0: It's so interesting to hear some of these different examples. And, you know, I think you and I've talked about, we're going to shine sort of a light on a couple different manifestations of this sort of outside of technology choices, but we'll look at a couple different other ones. But I was wondering if we could talk about some of the specific choices within, within this particular example. Like, What was missing from the conversation in the, maybe in this particular example that maybe should have been introduced or, or asked ahead of time to, I guess, like switch the order of operations for thinking about the technology choice? Was there a, a different way that that conversation should have gone to create a better outcome?
1: Yes, absolutely. The conversation should have been about when and why this company, needed a particular technology choice, not whether a technology choice was good in and of itself. React mm-hmm. is good. React is not good for everyone. NoSQL is good. No NoSQL is not good for everyone in every situation. Every Every complicated thing you can think of has companies that it's best for, and then a long progression of companies or contexts or situations that it's less good for until you get to places where it's bad for those situations. So we could have talked about, well, what kind of data would be best suited to this clearly awesome, cutting-edge, NoSQL technology? And the answer would be data that's not very relational, (laughs) data that doesn't have a lot of interconnections to maintain, works great in a NoSQL context. Uh, and, And then it would have been a lot more clear that our data was not like that.
0: That's great. So to pull up sort of a different context where this may come up, I was wondering if we could continue talking about some of the other examples of how sort of this aspirational mismatch manifests when making different technology choices. So you mentioned some of the language decisions between like React and and others. Are there other sort of examples of aspirational tech choices? Because I think it's fun because I think also this is an area where I think there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions, you know, of like the right choice to do, like the right language to build something in, and it can get emotional and, and challenging and the reasoning, the foundational reasoning may be flawed because of it.
1: It's hard to pinpoint real things because they change over time. There was a time when React was a poor choice for most of the people picking it because it was so fresh. It was right out of Facebook. And if just because it was good for Facebook did not mean it was good for a tiny startup with 10 people. In fact, it mm-hmm. wasn't good for most tiny startups with 10 people at that time. But now React is an excellent choice for a lot of people because it's grown. And now there's other things. I don't know what it is exactly right now. Um, Our EdgeDB, I'm 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 sure it's awesome. PyTorch, I'm sure it's awesome. Snowflake, um, Snowflake's been around for a while. Maybe Snowflake's awesome for a lot of people, but each choice we have goes through, if it's good and it catches on, goes through this life cycle of becoming a better choice for a broader audience. It isn't at first, it isn't when it's the most exciting, it isn't at its most common, broad, best use. When we hear about a technology for the first time, That's often not when it's most broadly useful. It's exciting and people can start to see when it will be broadly useful, but it hasn't achieved that universality yet. And then we fixate anyways on the choices. We fixate on should we be using this buzzword? Should we be using this new package? And not talking about when or why.
0: I think that's such a great point. And I'm, I'm imagining as we we continue down this progression, we're going to revisit asking the questions when and why versus fixating on the choices. That's going to come up quite a bit in terms of what to do here. Uh, but I, I wanted to bring up like one one scenario that comes up quite a bit, like in in some of the peer group conversations that we we host, is like every, everyone kind of swaps, like, "Oh, what metrics are you looking at? You know, um, what are you measuring for your teams to understand what's what's working well?" And and I think maybe the the subliminal assumption is that like if we start measuring that other person's, you know, the same thing that they're measuring, then we're going to achieve either the same results or otherwise, I might be like, you know, grossly overgeneralizing the thought process there for the person. But um, what do you what's your thoughts around aspirational mismatch with metrics?
1: Amazing example. Amazing. Yes. The idea that because Google measures something, we should measure it pretty flawed. Um, But even two startups of the same size aren't necessarily measuring the same thing. My company is a tiny company, the mobile social company, I was That 10 years ago was a tiny company. But at the same time, daily active users was not the right measure for both of us. My current company is an enterprise company with projects that it goes through. Measuring daily Mm -hmm. active users would be terrible for us. And maybe that's um, more obvious than some others. But there's lots of things like people think of 100% code coverage as being the standard to approach the right thing. But when Mm -hmm. you're still working on prototypes and moving things around a lot and trying things in low risk situations, maybe 50% code coverage is great. Maybe that's better than 90% because you spent a lot less time building that code coverage and then rewriting the code anyway, and then rewriting the code coverage. Uh, maybe uptime doesn't have to be five nines for everybody. Five nines uptime is great, but maybe it's fine to bring down the server on Friday night for two hours because you have enterprise customers and they've all gone to bed anyhow.
0: Yeah. And so it, it. I'm picking up that a lot of the context, or at least like the context of the product you're working in, the business that you're in, or the industry that you're in matters here. Could you I was wondering if you could talk about like, what does this look like for you? Like in terms of determining what metrics like, can you walk us through either the questions or the rationale for like, why, why not certain things?
1: Yeah, we certainly tie metrics to business objectives. And my co founder and I believe The business objectives should be pretty simple, don't Mm overcomplicate them, and the metrics should be pretty direct. And currently in our phase of startup, building the business and and sales is our absolute top criteria right now. Um, Sales figures and renewal figures and whether customers' purchases go up with renewal uh, and how often they renew, those are absolutely our top metrics. We're building additional metrics right now to figure out quickly after a project is over, what was the satisfaction So metrics on satisfaction are more appropriate to us with our project-oriented service than Mm -hmm. daily use. So you just finished a cycle with us. A company runs a a cycle giving raises to 1,000 employees. You just finished a cycle with us. What was great about it? Would you recommend it to another company? What's your NPS? Um, NPS, the net promoter score, is that what it stands for, is a great metric for us. Because if we can build on referrals, we can build this business.
0: I think that's that's great. The simplicity and then connect like uh, the simplicity part, like the way you put that it almost seemed relieving
1: at an early stage. Don't be afraid to be basic.
0: (laughs) Gosh, I think that's like got to be relieving for a lot of folks. Because I think it's so easy to read a blog post of what you should be doing at x stage and maybe are not quite there yet. So I I definitely appreciate that. Since we're talking about metrics, like with the focus on simplicity, and measuring some of like the, the more fundamental parts, like how does that inform the frontline team or like, for, so th- the, what's the conversation like between either like the executives or senior leaders, and then people that maybe are like on the front line, building or delivering certain things? Like, does the the simple metrics make that conversation easy?
1: Most of the pressure I've gotten personally for overcomplicated metrics has been from leadership. And sometimes I just find the easiest way to give them the numbers they want, and then see if they ever use it quietly stop doing Mm -hmm. it after two months and see if they notice. (laughs) I think it deserves a pretty broad conversation if you're going to put effort into it. But there's also a possibility with metrics is to just play with them a bit. Say, what about this number? What does this number look like last week? What does this number look like next week? And before you put in a process to automate it, try it. This is fitting one of my other passions, which is figuring out how to iterate rather than do the right thing For your long term, all at once now, figure out a plan to iterate to get there
0: what you said about like asking the question of what are they going to do with it? So even if someone's like demanding, like, hey, give me this dashboard or whatever, and then asking internally, well, what are they going to do with it? It, it? We had a conversation with Taylor Murphy. He's the head of data and product at Meltano. And one of the things is like for him being in sort of like the data engineering space is that everybody's asking you to build a whole new dashboard and like, you know, all these big requests like to to get just more analytics about what's going on. The big thing we talked about with him was it's all about asking like almost from a consulting perspective of like, well, what do you want to do with this information? Like what action is this going to drive? Your distinction there. Of asking like okay like I'll give you this report but like what are you going to do with it like in order to justify like the ongoing cost to the overhead and the team to produce that I think is such an important question like a consulting question because you can have all these dashboards but if they're not driving decisions then like is the time and upkeep to make that happen really worth it Yes
1: I love that customer focused data engineering or customer oriented data engineering Uh, Yeah one of my personal soapboxes another one of them (laughs) is customer focused API design I would totally get along with with your previous guest.
0: (laughs) you mentioned size of the company or stage of the company is an important consideration. And so talk about like the dynamics around choosing a technology that's the wrong size for a company.
1: Okay, so this can happen in a number of ways. I've got some neat stories around size. Maybe it's the first thing I noticed uh, when I started identifying and jotting down aspirational mismatches. I was uh, mentoring a startup CTO uh, who had been at Facebook and He was implementing for his healthcare context, messaging your healthcare team collaborators. And he said, oh, I know how to do this right, because I was at Facebook, and you need to have an abstract definition of the message, and you do a call to make the abstract definition of the message, and then you make a call to fill in the concrete definition of the message, and then you make another call to convert the message to the wire format. And he implemented all of this in his tiny startup, and worse, he exposed it to customers, and then he realized all i needed was one call message team member this or message the whole team this maybe he didn't even need a a destination he realized it was he really realized he needed to keep it simple stupid the kiss principle <laughs> and and he unwound this and refactored it and made it simpler because customers complained mm-hmm. but it would have been the wrong thing for his company, even if he hadn't exposed it to customers, because he was just the wrong size to need that much abstraction, that much multi-purposing, that much flexibility. You can often build flexibility later. Code is inherently flexible, and often engineers build the flexibility in that they would if they were building a system for 2,000 engineers rather than for two. You see this in business software choices, companies that are choosing business software for a different scale company. Companies that are choosing Salesforce when maybe Pipedrive or a spreadsheet would be the better choice. Uh, Companies that are choosing Workday when maybe Bamboo would be a better choice. So that's another size mismatch where we want to be a big company someday, but behaving like a big company now doesn't necessarily get us there. And that's certainly true when you have to hire extra consultants to just make your big company appropriate system even work, even though you're a tiny company.
0: That's such a good point.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the fascinating ones for me is when this is inverted. When you see that companies that are big want to pretend they're small. <laughs> Most of the time, we're making choices to to aspire to be bigger than we are.
0: I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never heard of a company trying to operate as a small startup. There, that never happens. No way. Right. <laughs> but you see this in process choices, right?
1: That um, companies that have a thousand employees will be like, oh, well, we're still scrappy. We're still a startup. We're not overrun by processes. No, we're still a startup. And... <laughs> The truth is that some processes, some lack of processes are more appropriate to a tiny startup than when you have a thousand employees to think about and do do well by.
0: I definitely want to want to dive in a little bit deeper into the process stuff, because I think this is definitely a big trap. I, I did have one other follow up question related to the examples you're sharing earlier about some of the more architectural oriented decisions. And this is less about diving deeper into that, but more about like what happens when some of these different mismatches sort of merge together in a lot of like teams and organizations. It's never it's never like one thing that's like the only mismatch. It's usually like a combination of a couple taking, for example, like this architecture mismatch, pairing it with like a technology mismatch. What's the impact there? Like what makes that complicated and like really, drag down engineering teams?
1: The interplay of choices, even when one of them by itself isn't totally dragging you down, is so costly. The clearest example I ever had of this was working at a company that had an innovative kind of database that they were building in-house because they had to be that innovative and had a relatively new at the time programming language, Python. And then because Python was so new, they built a widget set that would meet the demanding user interface demands. And they had demanding user interface demands. It wasn't enough to have a prototype. It had to be amazing. Maybe some of these choices were required by what the company needed to be to be successful, but they weren't all required. And the interplay of them meant that whenever the new database got revised, then all of the people doing innovative networking had to redo their work. And all the people doing innovative UI had to redo their work. I developed a rule from that startup forward, which was that you get about three innovation tokens in a startup, spend them wisely, Three innovation tokens means that if you have a new database, a new widget set, and you're trying to come up with a combination of features that hasn't been shipped before, you've used up your three innovation tokens, you're done. Don't do anything else new. You can't have new team organization at that point. (laughs) You'll just like run everybody into the ground dealing with the interplay of these three or
0: more things. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. When you're considering the innovation tokens, is this at like the larger like entire entity of like the engineering function or is this like more related to like the teams or like verticals?
1: No, it's the whole it's the whole group. Okay. You spend an innovation token within just one team doing the database, but even though that seems like it's contained in one team, it's not. It's it's affecting the the company because then if the company is trying to innovate and build a kind of an app that people need that they don't have already, Every time you're exploring the edges of what that app needs to be because it doesn't exist yet, you're paying the cost of the database changing underneath you, and you don't even know it because they're separated by layers of code. So the, the mm-hmm. need to iterate on features and the need to make this database better are fighting each other and slowing each other down, even though they appear to be separated.
0: And I may, I may have misheard this, but do the tokens renew? Like, if is this three tokens like at play at once? And like, you, do you get to like refill your vault at some point? Or um, <laughs> is this like three and you're done? It's like three wishes and then you are you are out?
1: You know, that's an excellent question. I would say that you can retire a token. You have to be very considerate that we needed an innovation token to build a database. Maybe there's a justified case where you need to build a new kind of database to do a new kind of logging for your customers. And the innovation token to build that new kind of database is absolutely justified. How fast can you get rid of that innovation? How fast can you make it not an innovation, but a reliable, low cost maintenance well understood tool. And does that involve um, maturing it into open source that other people use? Or is that an extra cost? Does it involve getting to the point where the new thing is part of your training? So everybody who comes on board is trained on it within two weeks rather than have to like hit against its rough edges over the first year of their new job. It's a lot more than just, oh, the code's done, done and dusted. It's how, how easy is it to work with? Do people know how to work with it? Um, does it fit well in your other processes? That's when you can retire that innovation token and look around and say, okay, we could take on something new now.
0: The metaphor that comes to my mind is like, in in some ways, like doing the healthy practices of like documentation, managing like the tech debt and some of the things that make it smooth, sustainable and reliable is in a way like, it's like the mine, um, if we say the token is like a crypto token, it's like the mining (laughs) is all the reliability work and the tech debt to then, you know, help you yield another innovation token to go out and play. I think you're, you're sharing some really interesting things because I've I've definitely like duplicating people's process. Like that's a common thing also that comes up in these conversations where, you know, it's all the different versions of Sprint, Agile um, and everything like that. So can you tell us a little bit more about, and for everybody listening, I, I promise you, we're going to talk about like what you can do about this in much more greater depth. But like these examples are, these stories are so compelling because they're so relatable because I think people see this, observe this and experience this in a lot of different ways. So Lisa, talk to us about aspirational mismatch in process.
1: Okay, I know a company and I won't name them, but they aspire to be a well-managed company. And one of the things that well-managed means in Silicon Valley these days is that we have KPIs and OKRs. So this company has KPIs and OKRs. The problem is they haven't built a vision. They haven't got an agreed upon vision. They have been holding back on it for quite a long time and running without a vision, without an active, without an agreed upon vision, and certainly without clear communication to employees of that vision. So when KPIs and OKRs are untethered to a vision, the company is spending time doing KPIs and OKRs and they're pulling people in different direction because they're not coordinated across the company. They're not tied together to a single direction. This one, I just have this very clear vision in my head of all these people like pulling on ropes in different directions and the ship is not going anywhere. You must be, you must have KPIs and OKRs to be a well-managed company. So we need them, it's not us.
0: The vision conversation is is so critical. Because like last week, some of us folks on the ELC team, for a while, like we had been kind of operating with our certain vision paradigm for like how we wanted to, to support our, our community. And then one of our team members kind of threw up a flag and, and was like, I feel like we're all pulling in different directions after, you know, a few months of, you know, our previous vision conversation, and that we were all kind of optimizing for like our little piece of like what we were doing to support the organization. And it wasn't until we had this like pump the brakes conversation for like, what are we working towards? Like what is five years from now, what do we want to have impacted within our community? And then from there, you can start to make more of like that. Well, then, what are the objectives that help us get there, um, or what are the outcomes? And one of our, our previous guests, Jonathan Hensley, his conversation we had with him kind of came at that same time. And so we were like, oh, this is perfect, he, his whole conversation was about alignment and everything. And so the vision conversation, and then aligning your KPIs and your OKRs as a way to then achieve that is so essential. So uh, resonate with that because we were definitely experiencing that pain just about you know two weeks ago.
1: I really agree with that. I can't teach people to have a good vision. I just really value it when it's there. Find it incredibly frustrating to work at a place that doesn't have a clear vision. I try to contribute to it in my current startup, but I don't have any silver bullets. It takes maybe work, but maybe also a willingness to be basic sometimes. It's very basic to say our, our vision right now is to make sales, Yeah, but it's what it needs to be right now.
0: Well, I think like that probably is the intimidating part of like a quote unquote vision is that like sometimes the simple things are the most important part because I think like there's there in this word vision, there's like this expectation that it needs a big be a big, grandiose thing, but rather it can be a really direct, simple objective. So when you're having these conversations with folks, like are you beginning meetings with like, here's the vision? Like how do you kind of operationalize or integrate like communicating the vision for for folks you're working with?
1: In my engineering teams, what we do is we organize stuff into epics. We use a small A agile process, which means we try Mm -hmm. to actually be iterative and agile. And we don't worry so much if we're following the documented scrum processes. Um, But epics mean to us what they would mean to most people, which is a larger set of user stories, which when you're done, will achieve some goal that is meaningful. And it's not always a customer facing goal. We're currently in the middle of an epic trying to make our customer success and data engineering teams more efficient. And when we're done this epic, this bucket of 20 tickets, we will be a more efficient customer success and data engineering team. So love that it does meet a clear, a larger vision and every ticket in that in that bucket is linked to that epic and therefore it's linked to the bigger vision. We do work that's not in epics when it's bug fixes or urgent small things, but when it's people working on things for a week and then another week and then another week, we really want it to be tied to an epic and still have a short time frame but definitely provide value related to the vision when the epic is done.
0: Yeah, the disciplined effort to connect the multi-week multi-month projects to the vision. I think that can be that can be a really tricky thing. And so to hear that it it really is, it's the discipline to revisit that uh, as you're building out those epics is great.
1: Yeah. And we don't feel that epics is a process that's an aspirational mismatch. We've been using Epics since we were two engineers. As soon as it was more than just me, organizing and tying that work to brutal prioritization and to meaning for the engineer were two goals that were worth spending an hour every couple of months thinking, what is this epic? What will it achieve? What things really have to be in it and what things don't have to be in it? It aided our brutal prioritization work and paid dividends as soon as we adopted it.
0: Absolutely. We just talked about a, a bunch of different versions for which an aspirational mismatch can manifest from technology choices, architecture, process, metrics, and this is a ton of fun because in in some ways it's cathartic. I think to name some of the instances that this can can manifest, and I definitely feel guilty of a handful of these, and so in, in that way it feels cathartic for me because I'm like, okay, now we're going to talk a, bit, a little bit about how to how to fix this or like what to do um, what to do about this. So I think like one of the, one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit was why do these things happen so much? Like. Why 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 do aspirational mismatches occur so much? Like, where do the pressures come from? Like, how is this such a phenomenon that us as engineering leaders have to wade through?
1: I think it happens because we dream big, and I think that's great. I think having aspirations is wonderful. We all need to dream big. People who join startups, often dream big. We should think about what could be in five years, and that's so that we can work to get there, not that we can have some trick for arriving there suddenly, because the tricks are are an illusion. We don't get to the one million users in five years by having the right architecture or by hiring the Facebook engineer and doing everything they said. There aren't shortcuts not reliable ones. People can stumble on shortcuts, but you can't follow a recipe and throw in these ingredients, this NoSQL database, this Facebook engineer, this KPI process, and boom, you're a million user startup and beloved of everybody. But we dream about it. So how can we tie those together? Another thing I think that people get hung up on is believing that something is good universally, like believing that A tool that was good at a previous job is good universally. People love to have figured, have feel like they figured something out. We used Flask at my last company for microservices, and you know what? It was great. Flask is great, microservices are great, they're the right tool. And it would be great if, if we could always be right about that and, and have it figured out. But startups are always about trying to do something new, and, it's usually, and, and, and usually the previous solutions aren't 100% a good fit. So you have to let go of knowing that Flask and microservices are right and correct and say that, okay, well, Flask and microservices are a tool I'm familiar with, but when are Flask and microservices the best tool? And what situation are we in now? What characteristics does it have? There's also a grass is greener effect, believing that if we only adopted Flask and microservices now, then our frustrations with Django would be over. And usually the grass is not greener. You exchange (laughs) one set of frustrations for a different set of frustrations. But we'd love to believe that the grass will be greener on the other side. That's a lot of pressures. Board members, new hires. When you hire people from a great company, they bring great processes and tools with them. And that happens often enough that there's this whole like Facebook engineer, Google engineer in startup failure mode. Not that they're not super smart people, because they are and they do know a lot of great stuff, but they don't know its applicability yet. And boards put this pressure on, too. Conferences provide this pressure. You go to a conference and they really want to sell you a silver bullet. The conference will be like, yes, use EdgeDB. EdgeDB is going to be amazing and you should use it because that's their interest to to say that. You can believe what they say and believe that it's great and still say well, maybe it'll be right for us one day, not necessarily now.
0: Do you have a recommendation on how to stand up to say some of that external pressure, like where maybe a board member who has expertise in a certain area and has like a maybe a set of certainty that a, a certain choice is like maybe it's a technology choice or a process choice is the right one. And they're giving this recommendation, or maybe they're offering a recommendation without necessarily knowing the the on the ground context. Do you have a recommendation on how to navigate That external pressure conversation when a different choice that they are not recommending is the best path forward?
1: Yes. First of all, get off the universality arguments. Shift the ground immediately from is Flask good? Is it bad? Is EdgeDB good? Is it bad? To when is it good? Who is it good for? What characteristics make it good? I recently had numerous discussions with an engineer in my company about feature flags. Because we both agreed feature flags are good. In fact, we kind of have them. But we, part of the tension was trying to figure out if we should adopt a platform for feature flags. And we both agreed that the platform for feature flags is also good. LaunchDarkly is good. It's a great service. But we got off of the, is it good, is it bad conversation and into who is it good for? Who is it best for? And we realized some things about some characteristics about companies for whom a platform for feature flagging works the best are that they have a lot of users. If you have a lot of users, then feature flagging platforms can add a lot of value because they can help you deploy across a lot of users. If your company has a lot of undifferentiated users, a lot of users who get the same features and use the product in a similar way, then a platform for feature flagging gets you a lot more value doing randomness across those undifferentiated users. If you have the need to test against well-defined metrics that can be turned around quickly, like daily sales, then a platform for feature flagging can be amazing for you. So all of those things help us all agree that feature flagging is great, that LaunchDarkly is great, and it helped us realize that we, as a company, met none of those characteristics. We do not have millions of users. We do not have undifferentiated users. They each use quite different capabilities. And we definitely don't have the fast turnaround on metrics. So a platform and all the features that come along with that platform are just not as valuable to us as they are to other companies. So we were able to put that off and say, not now. We can see what would have to be different for this to be right for us.
0: That's such a great story to reveal a well-reasoned thought process. I'm wondering like more along this question of what can you do about some of this aspirational mismatch? And I was wondering if you had Any other frameworks or ways to help people reason through a decision when they're making some of these assessments. Uh, Because when you're talking about like getting people off of the universality, talking about when is this good and then assessing that based on your own use case, like incredible, incredible frameworks or approaches. I'm just looking for for more secrets from you, Lisa.
1: Okay. More secrets for identifying. Look for the wording. Look for things like saying we should, we should be agile, we should use feature flags, we should have user stories, we should have epics, we should have we should use message cues. Or things that talk about the future but then shift it into today without any discrimination, like saying, oh, we're going to need a design system for all of the buttons and tabs on our website, so let's build it. We're going to need it. We're going to need end-to-end tests. We're going to need browser-based regression tests. We're going to need these things. It may be true that you're going to need these things. It may be true that it probably isn't true that you should do something. Should is so context-dependent. But those kinds of arguments can often be identified to be aspirational. Just because we're going to need something, even if that's true, doesn't mean we need it today. Today, my company does need end-to-end tests, But we went for four years of building software without having end-to-end tests. And we started looking for, most of this was in my own head because I, I had been thinking about this problem for a while, but I started looking for What are the characteristics where end-to-end tests would really help us? Maybe it's when we've hit about 10 bugs that could not have been detected except by end-to-end tests, and we really hit them, like find them in production and say, oops, I'm embarrassed about this one. But don't implement the end-to-end tests because building that framework to get started is a cost and maintaining them is a cost until we hit the second one and the third one. Live with that embarrassment because building that end-to-end test framework in year two had an opportunity cost, that was some feature we could not have done that month and learned from and built our business better because we'd learned from that feature. End-to-end tests were something that we were at, that were in, was inevitable as long as we kept on going, but we could wait as long as possible to where the work would have the least opportunity cost and provide the most immediate value.
0: So the conversation of timing of like when would X really help us, and then talking about like living with the embarrassment if you know certain decisions don't meet your threshold. I think is great. What I'm wondering about is the part where planning for when you are ready for those aspirations, or like the planning conversation to move towards that that next step, because I'm like, man, you could have all these ideas for what you want to look like five years from now, when all these things like these tools, processes, and whatever, maybe aren't a right fit now, but you want them to be, what is that conversation like? and, And how do you plan for those things?
1: Oh my co-founder is great at this. She knows that when she starts asking about things, I treat it like she's asking me for things and my first like instinctive, I'm an engineer, I'm supposed to solve things reaction.
0: I have the so the same reaction, so that's so relatable. <laughs> so she says, "I
1: just want to talk about something." I don't want us to do it immediately, but I want to talk about what the shape of it would be and what things we would need in order to get there so we can avoid painting ourselves into corners. And that is almost word for word what she says when she's starting one of these conversations. And I'm immediately relaxed because I'm like, oh, thank God, I'm not being asked to do an extra thing right now. Okay, let's have this exploratory conversation. And we talk about something we'd like to get towards. Like what if we had a fully flexible system for companies to have any number of compensation plans and administer them in our product? What would we have to build to get there? How far out of reach is it? Should we be putting one of those early steps in our plan now? does the roadmap look like? Let's let's pull out those maps and plan our exploration a little bit, at least in in possibilities, and see where, where we might go and what we, we might have to do to get there. And my co-founder is amazingly gentle and supportive about this. But if you're working with somebody who's a lot hardcore about like, we need fully flexible compensation plans for any number of, of such plans. And then as the engineer, I need to be able to stay, step back and say, okay, Here's what we would need to do to get there. And the first step could be this, and it would have this value. But start to think about the costs and the steps and the the time frame and, and the different pictures of the roadmap. It's not just an estimate. It's a lot more and less than an estimate at the same time. It's more talking about the shape of things and giving somebody sometimes reassurance that we can get there. We can get to this feature that you want to tell people about. It is possible. I'm not saying never. I'm saying there's a roadmap.
0: The way you introduced that conversation was so disarming. as as you were illustrating, like I immediately felt disarmed. And then what I also appreciated was how you provided like how both people in different scenarios can approach that conversation differently to focus on the shape of things versus the I need you to do something else that may feel impossible. Because my default reaction is, oh my God, you're asking me to do another thing and I'm already trying (laughs) to go above and beyond with constrained resources. But the way that an engineering leader can reframe that, talking about the shape of things, reassuring that we can get there. But then on the other side, like how to approach that, I think is, is really great. Lisa, are you ready to to wrap this up with some rapid fire questions? Yes. All right. So the first question, what are you reading or listening to right now?
1: One of my favorite podcasts right now is the Tech Won't Save Us podcast by Paris Marks. I do like the practice, the continual improvement of thinking about tech, not just in terms of what we'd like it to be, but what its actual impact on people and different kinds of people truly is. So I am loving that one and I never miss an episode.
0: That's a great recommendation. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you?
1: Lean Startup absolutely stands out. I read Laura Klein's book on user design in Lean Startup, and it was really a buzz 12 years ago. So of course I picked up other books, but Laura Klein's book was absolutely the best one for teaching me what I could do about it. But it has been 10 years of getting better and better at practicing the principles of Lean Startup and seeing what can be achieved when you truly pay attention to what is this thing that could teach us more. And then the frustration of having some investors treat Lean Startup as, oh, Lean Startup means I can fund my companies for less money. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it is not that. It is not low budget. Low budget is not the same thing as Lean Startup. It's really a different approach to deciding what to build and building it, which fits really well with all the aspirational mismatch stuff. Identifying aspirational mismatches can help you do Lean Startup better.
0: That's great. So this next question more leans with the the theme of how folks are either remote, hybrid, moving to in person, somewhere in between, but the global sentiment is that most people can benefit from more purposeful intentional experiences, especially if you're calling people to return to an in-person moment. And so I'm wondering, from your perspective, what's been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences, either with your team, company, or otherwise? doesn't have to be the most, but like in the ballpark of one of the most meaningful in-person experiences that you've had, uh, what would it be?
1: At our last in-person gathering of my tiny startup, we gathered at my co-founder's house and she organized us to make lunch together. We made lunch for each other. We broke out the responsibilities. I grilled things and we figured out what we needed. It wasn't over overly specified. We just worked as a team in the kitchen, and we sat down and we ate together. It was so lovely.
0: There are so many like subtle m- metaphorical elements to that. Like one that stands out to me, so there's this book The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker, one of my favorite books of all time, and she talks about the power of introducing sort of different unique rules or elements for your gathering. One story she shares about this dinner where everybody serves each other. And then like the act of serving each other creates this environment where everybody in the room is actively looking to take care of the people next to them. And so it creates this feeling of like support that I'm being taken care of, which is amazing. So when you're talking about this idea of like making lunch together, there is this like element of serving, supporting, taking care of the people that you're working with, which I think is such an amazing subliminal thing to to create in, in like a non-direct way or an indirect way for for culture. I think that's beautiful. I want to be invited next time is the other thing I want to say. Please extend me an invitation. would love to come. I grilled
1: some pretty awesome shrimp that day. and I want I <laughs> wanted to do well because I wanted to please and delight everybody in my team by eating the food I made.
0: That's great. Next question. What is a trend you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet?
1: Something that hasn't hit the mainstream yet, I think, although it is on the edge of it, is a whole new generation of d and d players and styles for playing d and d. I have been playing d and d since I was twelve or thirteen, so that's thirty five years now, <laughs> and it, the game has only gotten better and better as more people play it, some of the elements of sketch comedy that get brought in by people who are playing it on Twitch. The fact that when people play a live session on Twitch, they're doing it in a very different environment than tournaments. Tournaments used to be the only time when you could come and see Dungeons & Dragons being played by other people and learn how to improve your game and improve your style and and be a better dungeon master or a better player. But tournaments foster a very specific kind of competitive, rule-bound, play and Twitch streamers, that environment fosters romance and jokes, running jokes, funny hats. It is great. It is delightful. It has brought so much delight to D&D. It kept me sane during the pandemic, inspired me to run a campaign over Zoom and stay connected to people I wasn't seeing for two years. It's the best.
0: That is such a... Such an incredible story. Talking about anything, community connection and the explosion of creativity that can occur is is incredible. Last question, Lisa, to wrap us all up and send us off. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now?
1: I'm best known for a quote that's on my laptop, which says, a week of coding can save an hour of planning. It's not trademarked by me, but... <laughs> If you said that to a few dozen people, they'd be like, Lisa, <laughs> and brutal prioritization, which I mentioned before. A lot of the things I learn about and care about and get on a soapbox about are tied to being effective, to being effective at building code, at being effective at not just building code for code's sake, so being effective at building code that makes the world better for some people and thinking about how to prioritize, how to identify bad tech choices, how to do lean startup, how to do an hour's planning so that you can save a week of coding. It's said the non-ironic way. That's just what I'm all about.
0: Wonderful. Lisa, thank you so much for your time and for just some incredible stories and for helping us avoid some of the challenges, trials, tribulations related to the trap of aspirational mismatch. It was really wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thank you. It was delightful talking with you. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.